Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. David Petker talks with Dr. Jay Piccarillo about his article, Randomized Clinical Trial to Evaluate Mimetazone Lavage versus Spray for Patients with Chronic Rhinosinusitis without nasal polyps who have not undergone sinus surgery. This episode of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Carl Stores. Carl Stores enables anywhere care with the new sterile single-use flexible video endoscopes for ENT. As patient treatment continues to migrate, some sites of care are faced with reprocessing and sterilization challenges. With the new single-use endoscopes, reprocessing, transporting of dirty endoscopes, and repair costs are all eliminated. The video endoscopes provide a sharp image and can be used on multiple Carl Stores video platforms. Please visit www.carlstoresnetwork1.com forward slash ENT to find out more. Hello and welcome to Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your guest host, David Petker, and with me today is Dr. Jay Piccarello from the Washington University in St. Louis. And we're going to talk about his paper, Randomized Clinical Trial to Evaluate Mometazone Lavage versus Spray for Patients with Chronic Rhinosinusitis Without Nasal Polyps Who Have Not Undergone Sinus Surgery, which is currently available on the IFAR website. Jay, welcome uh, to Scope It Out, and thanks very much for the time. Well, my pleasure, David. Great to hear from you, and thank you so much for highlighting our manuscript. So tell us, uh, well, first of all, how are things in St. Louis? Uh, hot. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, you know getting hot. Beginning of our summer, a beautiful day, but yes. Uh-huh. It's it's funny because I don't realize how much further south you are than we are here in Milwaukee. We're gonna just starting a cold front. It's gonna get down in the 60s the next several days. Typical Wisconsin weather for us. I'm surprised it's not snowing, honestly. So tell us about the study. Kind of give us the the Cliff's Notes version of the study. Yeah, this was a uh, randomized clinical trial to look at the efficacy of mometazone delivered in a nasal saline lavage versus mometazone as a nasal spray, or typically known as nasonex. So we are comparing two delivery systems for mometazone among patients with chronic rhinosinusitis. And the key is these are patients with chronic rhinosinusitis without nasal polyps and without previous surgery. Why did you choose that group specifically? Well, we wanted to exclude the polyp group because, you know, obviously there are different phenotypes, different group. But more to your question, I think, is why did we uh, focus just on those patients who had not had previous sinus surgery? Well, in our prior study with budesonide, um, published in 2018, we had a a large number of patients in that trial, almost uh, 70% or so, who had not had previous sinus surgery and really had an excellent response. And there had been some thought that, Sinus surgery is necessary to open up the osteum, open up the sinuses, to allow the nasal irrigation to get into the sinus cavities to deliver the medication. And clinically, you know, our faculty down here at WashU had not really observed that personally. Uh, you know, I had not seen that in my own patients. That is, patients with chronic rhinosinusitis who hadn't had previous surgery did really quite well. And in fact, the uh, epiphany for me was a gentleman who came with really quite extensive sinus inflammation, chronic sinus disease, CT scan was, you know, completely pan-sinusitis and impacticide, but did not want sinus surgery. Mm-hmm. And so working with him and delivering the steroids via the nasal saline lavage, uh, you know, I was just amazed at how quickly he cleared up. 
And, you know, it just made us all sort of wonder, hmm, do you really have to open up the osteum or in some way can this delivery system, uh, has been shown to be so effective in other things, deliver that medication, this topical corticosteroid, budesonide or memetazone is what we use, without opening up the sinuses. Yeah, I always joke that the you know the debate about the sinus surgery, whether it's really designed for facilitating drainage or facilitating drug delivery, is is kind of like the taste great less filling debate from the Miller Lite ads in the in the 70s and 80s. It doesn't really matter all that much, honestly. I don't think. I, I think both are important, but it's interesting to see. I would not have. Well, I won't. I won't steal any of your thunder. Tell us about the results that you found. Yeah, so what we, so again, let's just repeat, uh, uh, chronic rhinosinusitis patients were divided, uh, randomized to one of two arms, nometazone in a nasal saline lavage. Now they also had the, uh, the placebo nasal spray, or mometazone as a nasal spray, again, sort of like a nasonex. So they got the active drug as a spray, and then they used saline lavage with a placebo mometazone capsule. The memetazone was 1.2 milligram capsules, and they would put two in the 240 mil Nelmed low-pressure, high-volume lavage. And so what we found is that in both groups, their sinus symptoms, their SNOT-22 scores, if you will, improved. In other words, they both got better. And what we did find was that in the memetazone in the nasal saline lavage group, they got better than the other group. Mm-hmm. But both groups got better. Yeah. And so that, that was interesting. Now, in this study, you used both objective measures, you used the Lund Kennedy endoscopic score, and you used the patient reported outcome measures, the, the SNOT 22. And you make an interesting comment in the study in that, or in the introduction, that only 3% of chronic rhinosinusitis studies have focused on patient reported outcome measures. Why do you think that is, and does that surprise you? I, I was surprised to see that number being so low. Me too, and Paulina picked that one up. That's from Claire Hopkins in a group in England, published in Rhinology in 2016. Yeah, it makes the point that, like just as you said, David, we, we just, I, in my opinion, we don't spend enough time focusing on the patient-reported outcome measures. And what's particularly surprising is chronic rhinosinusitis is so much defined by the patient's symptoms or the patient's uh, functional status. And so you would think a condition like rhinosinusitis would have more subjective type measures, if you will, or patient-reported outcome measures. But alas, like so many other medical conditions, the outcome measures tend to be measured with objective uh, or, or thought to be objective. That's a whole other podcast. So, you know, I think in medicine we do have a bias to selecting things that we call objective, measures that we call objective because they can be spit out from a machine, they can be photographed and preserved, but they don't necessarily represent what it is that patients are bothered by or what it is that patients want to have improved with treatment. Mm-hmm. So I do think that's a, a medical blind spot, if you will, is focusing sure. on what we think are objective and ignoring you know, what subject. Now, with that said, you know, I'm pleased to say this not 22, and this isn't a plug, but this not 22, which is a disease-specific health status, functional status measure. It's been around for about 26 years. It's in 53 different languages. You know, really does get used in a lot of the chronic rhinosinus papers. So I wouldn't say it's not used. I wouldn't say people don't focus mm-hmm. on patient reported, but maybe not as much as we should. Yeah, well, it's definitely taken off. You know, so I don't know how many people know that you developed the uh, the sinonasal outcome test. Uh, you and your group did. How did that come to be? I know it's a bit of a tangent, but how did that come to be? Sure. Well, again, having you know, early on in my training, gone to our 
meetings and hearing about the outcomes after sinus surgery, and the outcomes were all described by changes in the radiographic pattern of the sinuses, you know, pre-op, cloudy inflammation, post-op, sinuses are clear, and then the assumption was patient has no symptoms or patient is better, and, you know, we've all had patients with pretty clean sinuses but pretty heavy symptom burden, and so I, I thought to myself, well, how do we really know the patients got better if we're not actually asking the patient? And so what I did is I began to interview patients with chronic rhinosinusitis, exploring the physical, functional, and emotional problems that they had. And initially came up with about 46 items and then whittled them down to 31 and then 22 and then 16. And then Claire Hopkins and her group and the, the English group did the UK audit. They put two items back into the 20, and now we have the SNOT 22. So now we also have the SNOT 25, working with John Schneider and people here in St. Louis, added some productivity and absentee measures. So the whole point of the sinonasal outcome measures is to capture those physical, functional, emotional problems that the patient experiences so that we can measure our outcomes in ways that are meaningful to both doctors and patients. Right. So with a quality of life disease process, it's important to measure the the quality of life, right? Exactly. So it's interesting, you know, and again, the SNOT-22, I think, has become the gold standard for these types of studies. And, and with that, they have been able to calculate the clinically important difference. There's obviously statistically significant, but does it matter to the patient? And with that, you were able to show a clinically important difference in both groups, correct? Correct. Just for your audience, again, what we calculated, and many instruments calculate these minimum clinically important difference, like, like you said, David, and so for the SNOT-22, it's a difference in the SNOT-22 score, which can range from 0 to 110, a difference of 9. And so if the patient's SNOT-22 score goes down by 9 points or, or more, we, we say that they've had a clinically meaningful improvement. And so what we did is we took everybody in the trial, everybody's pre-SNOT and post-SNOT score, we calculated the difference, and then if the difference was nine points or greater, we, we classified that person as a you know a responder or, or had a clinically important difference. And then we looked at the percent of people in each group. And in this study, we had uh, 64% of the participants in the spray group, that is the like the Nasonex group, if you will, the active ingredient in the nasal spray. So that was 64% in that group versus 81% in the group that got the mometazone in the nasal saline lavage bottle. So that's a difference of 17% of the patients, a difference of 17% number of patients, uh, more in the mometazone in the lavage group who reported clinically meaningful uh, differences. Mm -hmm. Can you, I, I guess this is a question for myself more than, than the audience, can you grade the clinically important difference, meaning if they have 18-point improvement, is that twice as good of an improvement as a nine-point? Yes, uh, that is correct. We don't do that, but uh -huh. the way we develop or the way we identify that clinically meaningful difference is looking at the average change scores in each category of improvement. So we have people who say, uh, I'm extremely better after treatment, and we calculate the mean difference for that group. And then we look at the people's mean scores on the SNOT difference who say, I'm slightly improved. And then we look at the mean score for people who say no difference. And what you do see, David, is a linear trend. That is, the people who identify the most improvement, that is, I am extremely, you know, improved, their deltas are, on average, much greater. Now, you know, twice as much, as you suggested with your example, I can't say that, but it is, it is yeah. sort of linear. And then, so what you do, okay. 
Yes, and then we say, well, you know, anyone who says they're extremely better, very better, and slightly better, we lump that together, and we say those people have clinically important differences. And so for simplicity, we just dichotomize it. We just group them all together. But I think if we kept them separate, you could have categories of degree of clinical improvement, as you suggest. So it does work that way. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. Now, another thing that I found interesting with this study is, is that you really saw no real difference in the Lund Kennedy score between the two groups. I was surprised by that. Were you surprised by that? I was too. And I think that just speaks to responsiveness to change. That a very important measure for a psychometric and a clinometric measure is how sensitive instruments are to change. And we've seen that with the Lund Kennedy endoscopy score or some of our other studies. It just doesn't move very much in ways that you would think. In other words, people whose SNOT 22 scores, you know, improve, they say they're getting better. We just don't see that same type of change on the Lund Kennedy endoscopy mm-hmm. score. So it wasn't totally surprising. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think it's just a slower instrument? It's kind of behind the, the symptom curve a little bit, or is it? Yeah, uh, is there some subjectivity in the grading, or can mm-hmm. you explain that? Yeah, I think all of those are in play, David. Maybe the phenomenon takes longer to, to change than the symptoms. That's something I should mention. This was only an eight-week trial. Yeah, that's one of the limitations that you pointed out. Is it reasonable to expect major physiological or mucosal changes in eight weeks? I don't know. I I kind of would think we would have seen more. I agree with you. I I think that needs to be thought about. And then the way that the instrument is graded, I, I, I don't remember the validation studies that look into it, but, you know, how the different categories are defined and may just not be capturing the phenomenon like we think it should be. But I want to say again, it is not at all unusual that the objective measures don't correspond with the subject measures. In fact, Mickey Stewart and I, way back when, I, I didn't want to say how long ago, but you know, look at the correlation, or I should say the lack of correlation, between symptom scores, the SNOT scores, and CT scan, X-ray scores. Right. And here in St. Louis, I did that study and showed a correlation of about 0.12, which was almost nothing. And uh, Mickey Stewart was great. He said, Jay, I loved your study, but I don't believe it. And I said, okay. I didn't either until I did it, Mickey. And I gave him all my data collection form. He repeated the protocol when he was down in Houston. Amazingly, found almost the exact same correlation statistics. So it was a great validation. And both of us you know, feel very confident that objective measures and subjective measures in sinusitis, like almost every other medical condition, don't always correlate. Now, that doesn't mean one's better than the other. It just means... They're measuring right. different things. And again, sure. maybe, the, maybe the mucosal changes take a little longer to happen. Getting back to the limitation that you pointed with the, with the eight-week duration of this study, if money was not an object and, and com- patient compliance was not an object, those types of things, what do you think would be the ideal time frame of this study? How long do you think would be the ideal duration? Great question, David. Uh, you know, three to six months, but then I... I started thinking about the seasonality of it, too. As we know, so many of our patients' symptoms kind of wax and wane with the season. So yeah. would you like to say they should go through a complete seasonal pattern? So would that be 12, 12 months in some areas of the country and six months in others? You know, it gets a little complicated. But, mm-hmm. you know, again, we feel very strongly that a limitation is only eight weeks. And you're absolutely right. Well, you know, why only eight weeks? Well, you know, time and money, really. I mean, we thought we would see an effect, and we did in eight mm-hmm. weeks. But, you yeah. know, ideally, I would have liked to have seen that run out to three or six months. You know, as editor of of JAMA Odo, I always are critical of manuscripts that are submitted that explore outcomes for chronic diseases but have a very short follow-up time. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. not right. And here I fell to the trap also a little bit. Eight weeks was enough to see a difference, but ideally, to answer your question, David, probably three to six months. 
Interesting. Now, a couple protocol things. You included the adult comorbidity evaluation 27, the ACE 27. I've never heard of that before. Why was that included? It is, as the name implies, it's a comorbidity instrument to define the other diseases. Now, this was developed on a cancer cohort. So this would be patient, adults with cancer, all types of cancers, who have other conditions, heart disease, lung disease, diabetes. And I developed that instrument way back in the early 90s during my fellowship Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Fellowship at Yale, to identify the other comorbid conditions that patients with cancer have that can impact on treatment and outcomes. And over the years, many people, including myself, have used it for other chronic diseases like COPD and life sinusitis. So it's just a general comorbidity measure. It measures the overall burden of comorbid ailments. So kind of a how sick is this individual? Yeah. All right, that yeah. makes sense. That makes and, sense. And we had about 8, 8% of the patients had comorbidities so severe that it's probably irreversible, uh, won't get better with medication, is, is probably looking at more like a transplant. So 8% of people, well, you know, 8%, it was 4 out of 53, had mm-hmm. severe comorbidity. And so the question is, you know, could that have impacted the outcome? And, in fact, all four of them, by luck, were randomized into the mometazone nasal irrigation cavity. And you mm-hmm. could, you know, conceivably say, well, those people are probably more resistant to therapy because they're so sick, but we don't know. Right. Right. And then I was also surprised that you're only doing one dose per day. Is that mm-hmm. is that your standard with a steroid rinses? Yes. My standard is about one hour before bedtime. But then uh-huh. at least for initial dosing, which would be you know equivalent to this trial, I always say to my more severe patients, if you would like to give a dose in the morning, feel free to do that. So, you know, BID, you can use it in the morning, you can use it in the evening. You can use it in the morning without the steroid and put the steroid in the evening. Mm-hmm. You can use a steroid every other day, three times a week. I try to make the point that I'd like you to use at least a nasal saline lavage on a daily basis or twice daily, and then add the steroid medicine as needed, and we talk about de-escalation of the steroid. So I don't keep people on two capsules or 2.4 milligrams you know, forever. I mean, maybe my severe sinusitis, severe polyp patients, but for most patients, I say after about six to eight weeks, you can de-escalate the amount of steroid you have. So you can use mm-hmm. steroid every other day, and then about six to eight uh, weeks from then, you can go to steroids every third day. But you're right, Dave. I'll also say sometimes for the more severe patients, you can go ahead and use it twice a day. Yeah, a couple things. Steroids has, has always been an interest of mine and, and the side effects and things. And so I was very pleased to see that you did the cosentropin test, which most endocrinologists tell me is a, the most sensitive way to study any type of adrenal suppression. And then you also gave a really nice breakdown of why mometazone and the potential benefits of mometazone over budesonide. And I only say potential because, you know, that head-to-head trial hasn't been done. In-depth look at the two hasn't been done as far as overall safety and things. But that was very nicely done also, I think. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you, David. With regards to budesonide over mometazone, you know, I'm still not sure if it's just a theoretical benefit or if it's a real benefit. As you know, as you mentioned in the paper, we talk about the structure of mometazone. We talk about the different rates of absorption with mometazone having quite a bit less than budesonide. But you know, honestly, in my practice, 12 years of using that, I've not seen anybody develop a systemic complication from either. And right. I think oftentimes it comes down to price. Price point. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think you know, again, just overall, the, the amount of drug that's getting swallowed is is really pretty small. Now, you mentioned Pawina, your uncle Chai, earlier, and she is one of your residents, correct? She's the first author of the study, and she's one of your residents, correct? 
Yes, absolutely. Let me give a shout out to Paulina. She did a great job running this trial. This was her trial. She wrote the protocol. She was a two-year postdoctoral scholar as part of our NIDCD-sponsored T32 Physician Scientist Training Program. So she had done two years of clinical training and then stepped out of clinic and came into the lab, honored to have her work in the outcomes office with me and did a variety of projects in smell and taste. But this project was the Momentazone trial that she wrote and, I'm proud to say, received the American Rhinological Society Resident Research Grant. She was in the clinic enrolling patients, working with Dr. Schneider, Clark Cromwell, Drescher, or other faculty, enrolling the patients, then working with our statistician, our outcomes office, Dr. Calgary, to, you know, analyze the data, and I served as her faculty mentor on it. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, well, it's a great job. Congratulate her for me, too, because this is great, and I think this is for any residents listening in on this. The resident research grant to the American Rhinologic Society is a great way to get some startup funds and, and do really cool studies like this. Yeah, I agree. I want to give a shout-out to these specialty society grants because, you know, at the end of the day, our sample size was small, our duration of follow-up was short, and all of those things are true. But what's also true is that, you know, Pawina was able to take the, the funding, which, quite frankly, is limited, but, you know, take the funding and make a nice project and answer a question and, as we often talk about, perhaps lay the groundwork, this, you know, this foundation for subsequent bigger trials and exploring new things. So, you know, I think Pawina did a great job doing what residents should do with basically pilot funding. And I believe that, you know, Pawina delivered back to the ARS what they would hope to was stimulate, you know, research among a young trainee. And I think to answer, at least um, give one answer, right? No one study is going to answer everything definitively. But, you know, provided a, a nice answer with qualification limitations, but provided an answer to a really important clinical question. So, yeah, I mean, it was really a, a great experience. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Great shout out. And before I let you go, I like to ask everybody a trivia question. And sometimes that trivia question is relevant to them and their lives and where they live, but most of the time it is not. So you were in St. Louis. You've been there for many years. And uh, St. Louis is the home of Budweiser beer, <laughs> right? Obviously yes. inferior to Miller Beer, which is uh, uh, has its home in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I am. But Budweiser beer in the late 1980s, Bud Light's mascot was Spuds McKenzie. <laughs> do you remember that? Barely. <laughs> well, then you're not going to do very well on this question. Can you give me one of two things? Spuds' real name, meaning the name of the dog that played Spuds McKenzie, or the breed that Spuds McKenzie was? Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. No, I'm thinking Cocker Spaniel, but what's the one that's got that spot on the eye? I can't remember, David. <laughs> so it turns out there's a bit of a, a bit of controversy with this. It was a female bull terrier, ah. and her name was Honey Tree Evil Eye, and that's per Wikipedia. The controversy was that it was a female dog playing a male dog. There's a oh. lot of debate about that. Yeah, in the in the beer world. So um, I'm sorry. Well, yeah, you got me. That's all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I intentionally don't make them easy. All right, Jay, well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. Great study. Congratulate your entire team for us. And again, thank you for your time. And to the listeners, thank you very much for tuning in. And you can look for Dr. Jiramon Kolchai's paper, along with all the other new papers at the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology's website. Thanks very much. David, thank you for highlighting our work. Take care. 
Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors.